Welcome to the Good Fight Radio Show, a program dedicated to bringing you vital and uncompromised truths that you won't hear in the mainstream media, discussing contemporary issues in light of the Bible and how these issues relate to family, culture, and the church. The heart of this show is to glorify Jesus Christ and expose the works of darkness as he is commanded in Ephesians 5.11. Now here's your host, Good Fight Ministries' own Chad Davidson. Our guest today really doesn't need much of an introduction, as Dr. Frank Turek is really a world-renowned speaker, apologist, debater, and an author. In fact, we're going to be talking to him today about specifically the book he wrote alongside the late and great Dr. Norman Geisler, and that book is called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. Just one of the best titles out there. And so we are so excited to welcome none other than Dr. Frank Turek to the Good Fight Radio Show. Chad, I'm ready to have a good fight. Let's rumble. (laughs) Amen, brother. Well, praise God. You know, I have been so blessed by your ministry for so long. Uh, So many different people also at our church as well as our ministry. We actually have you on our radio station 24 hours a day. Uh, Not that you're the only one being listened to, but... You're on there. That'd be pretty boring. (laughs) But you got a lot of good material out there with between cross-examine and between your books. I know we're going to be talking about I don't have enough faith to be an atheist, which you wrote alongside the late, great Dr. Norman Geisler. And I'm excited to talk about that. But before we get into any of those awesome reasons for why we believe what we believe as Christians, as blood-bought believers, I got to know, how was it that you came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, I came to faith. I was brought up a Catholic because I'm from New Jersey, and it's the law. You have to be Catholic. I don't know if you know that. Um, But in any event, I went to Catholic high school. The problem was I just really never knew who Jesus was. I don't know if it was my fault or wasn't taught it or both. And when I got through college and then went into the Navy, I met the son of a Methodist minister. And I always believed in God. I always knew there had to be an a cause, an uncaused first cause. There had to be a creator. That was obvious to me. Uh, but I just didn't know who Jesus was. And when I got in the Navy, I met the son of a Methodist minister. He and I turned out to be roommates. And I had so many questions for him. I find, He finally just said to me, look, you just need to get Josh McDowell books. Evidence demands a verdict more than a carpenter. So I read those books. And after I read them, I went, wow, this stuff's true. And then after I got out of the Navy, I met Norman Geisler because I was taking a class in apologetics at McLean Bible Church, and he was one of the instructors that came in from out of town, and he was starting a seminary here in Charlotte, North Carolina. So back in 1993, my wife and I moved to Charlotte with our three sons, and uh, that's how I got into this. And I started writing books with Dr. Geisler, doing seminars with him. One of the books is called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. And then in 2006, I started... uh, crossexamine.org. And what that is, is we go to colleges, high schools, and churches, and we present evidence that Christianity is true. And we also cross-examine ideas against it. So we do a lot of uh, college events. As we're recording this, we just did one last night at the University of Cincinnati. All that stuff you can see on our YouTube channel because we stream it. Uh, So if you want to go back and see any of those presentations, especially the Q&A, the Q&A is always fun. So that's how I came to faith through apologetics. 
No, I absolutely love that. And, you know, to get lined up there with Dr. Norman Geisler, hard to get better than that. And, you know, one of the things that I love, and you mentioned your YouTube channel and your Q&As, because for me, the first time I had ever heard of Dr. Frank Turek was about eight years ago, maybe a little bit more. And I was looking across different videos on YouTube and I'm looking at things to show to my youth group. And I came across your video where you were speaking with a young man named Carter who came up and brought out three arguments against the Christian faith. And I believe, and we'll put a link in the description for anyone who hasn't seen that yet. And I believe that it was one of the best tools that I was able to use to show to my youth group, hey, this was a great way to share the truth of scripture and the truth of what reality shows us without coming off as a mean guy or a jerk and just trying to be right. But I think that video was so well done in terms of you just explaining the truth of that. But he brought out three main arguments that are very, very common. And it was after a talk that you had given. And one of those arguments, maybe we can kind of just go through that a little bit. And maybe if you have any background that I don't know about from watching just the video from that little Q&A session, but one of the first things he brought out, obviously you must have talking on the moral, or spoken on the moral argument for God's existence, and he came out and said, well, atheists are moral, therefore you're wrong in this argument. I believe that's somewhat how it was kind of listed. So maybe you could speak to that and we can kind of springboard from there. Well, when Christians make the moral argument, basically what we're saying is, is that if there's one thing morally wrong out there, say it's wrong to torture babies for fun or... It's wrong to murder six million people in a Holocaust. Then there has to be a God. Otherwise, it's just your opinion against someone else's opinion. If there's no standard beyond humanity, everything's a matter of opinion. And we all intuitively understand, look, it's not just not just my opinion that murder's wrong or rape is wrong. It really is wrong. If it's really wrong, there must be a standard outside of ourselves that we're obligated to obey, a standard of goodness and righteousness we would call God's nature. Uh for that to be wrong, there's got to be a standard of right. And so I had explained that when I was doing the presentation. And then this young man, Carter, got up and said, well, it's offensive that you're saying we atheists can't be good. But that's not the argument. The argument isn't that atheists can't be good. The argument is not that atheists don't know morality. They can be good. They can know morality. What they can't do is justify what morality is. They can't justify good or bad because there's no standard outside of themselves. It's just whatever their opinion is. When 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 Christians are saying that, uh, say, murder's wrong, we're appealing to a standard outside of ourselves, an authoritative standard that I need to obey and you need to obey. And atheists don't have that standard. It's just, you know, we're just molecules in motion, according to them. We're just moist robots. So quite frequently, atheists will make that mistake. They think we're saying they can't be good or they can't know what good is. And we're not saying that. We're just saying you can't. You can't ground what good is. You can't justify what good is. You can actually be good. You can actually know good, but you you just can't actually justify what good is, what right or wrong is. No, I think that's great. And even Jesus said, even the pagans, they love their own. So yes, there are good things that you're going to do by the very nature you've been made in God's image. So that makes a lot of mm-hmm. sense. Um, and I guess that's kind of somewhat of a red heron there, too. Let's throw you over there and let's deal with this. Come on, debate with me that atheists can be good rather than simply just debating the fact that you have no objective standard. And I thought you did a great job in presenting that. And then one of the things he brought up also, and sometimes you hear this, 
And you gave a great answer to it. And it has to do with the first cause. And he said, why can't the universe actually be that first cause? So why is that, Dr. Turek? Well, look, there has to be an uncaused first cause. There has to be something that has always existed because you can't go on an infinite regress of causes. Uh, There has to be something that has always existed, that is eternal, that is what the Bible calls the great I am, the being that had no beginning, the being that will have no end, the being that has always been, whose essence equals his, his existence, as Aquinas would say. There has to be an uncaused first cause. Look, it's either the universe or something outside the universe. All the evidence shows that the universe is not the uncaused first cause, that there was a beginning to the universe, that space, time, and matter literally had a beginning out of nothing. And as you know, Chad, the atheists are admitting that the universe had a beginning out of nothing. Stephen Hawking famously said that almost everyone now believes that the universe and time itself had a beginning at the Big Bang. Well, if the universe had a beginning, if space, time, and matter had a beginning, whatever created space, time, and matter can't be made of space, time, and matter. In other words, the cause must be spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful to create the universe out of nothing, personal in order to choose to create, because to go from a state of nothingness to a state of creation, someone had to make a choice, and only persons can make choices. The being would also have to be intelligent to have a mind to make a choice. So I always ask people, I say, when you think about a spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful, personal, intelligent cause, who do you think of? And everyone says God. But then some will say, well, how do you know it's the Christian God, Frank? And my answer is, we don't. Yet, we haven't done enough research yet. I mean, this could be Allah at this point. The cosmological argument, which is what I'm talking about here, that if the universe had a beginning, it must have had a beginner. That argument doesn't get you all the way to the Christian God. It gets you about halfway there. It gives you six attributes of of what could be the Christian God. But you don't know if it's the Christian God until you've investigated whether Jesus rose from the dead. And if, in fact, he did rise from the dead, then it turns out that the same being that walked out of the tomb 1,988 years ago is the same being who created the universe in his divine nature. So the universe can't be the uncaused first cause. In fact, if space, time, and matter had a beginning, as the atheists are admitting, and if you're spaceless and timeless, do you have a beginning? Do you have a cause? No, if you're timeless, you don't have a cause. You've always existed. And so a timeless being doesn't have a cause. A timeless being doesn't need a cause. A timeless creator is uncreated himself, so he doesn't need a cause. So the question, who made God, makes no sense. He's not made. It's like, a, it's like asking a bachelor, what's your wife's name? Well, he doesn't have a wife. That's the whole point, okay? So uh, the evidence shows that the universe had a beginning, and if the universe had a beginning, it must have had a beginner. No, I think that's great. And as you said, this doesn't get us all the way to Christianity. I mean, even the Kalam cosmological argument, I think that was first by what, Al-Khazali? I don't know. I'm sure I'm pronouncing that wrong. And he was a Muslim. It goes way back into the Middle Ages. I think a Muslim philosopher may have thought of it first. But William Lane Craig has made it more popular in recent years. In fact, he wrote a book called The Kalam Cosmological Argument, where he's saying, look, if there was a beginning, there has to be a beginner. And look, I, even before I heard any of these people, it just seemed intuitive to me. And it, it's, it's, it's what the Bible says, too. You know, he where Paul says the Gentiles are without excuse because God's 
divine qualities and divine attributes are clearly seen but by, by, by what has been made. So, in other words, the effects of God tell us something about the cause, God. And that's how we know God exists. We know God by his effects. There's a creation. That's the effect. There must be a cause, a creator. If there's design, that's the effect. There must be a cause, a designer. There's a moral law written on our hearts. That's the effect. There must be a cause known as the moral law giver. So you put all these arguments together and you get a being that looks suspiciously like the God of the Bible. <laughs> yeah. And you would guess that it would. Very interesting. And then one of the things he brought out to level against you is the idea of hell. And he said, you know what? It, you know, this God, I can't believe in him because, you know, there's a hell. And if I don't believe in him, he's going to send me there. And I thought the way you responded to Carter in that video was just excellent. And maybe you could kind of delve into that here. Yeah, well, they can see the video for themselves. But basically, the point is, is that the reason people go to hell is not because they uh, haven't accepted Jesus. The reason they go to hell is because they've sinned. It's like saying, uh, oh, I don't go to or I, the reason I die is because I didn't go to the doctor. No, the reason you die is because you have a disease. Now, maybe you could prevent dying by going to the doctor. But the reason you're dying is because you have a disease. Now, you can prevent eternal death by going to the great doctor, the great physician. That's Jesus. But to say that um, I'm, I'm going to hell because I don't believe in Jesus isn't really true. You're going to hell because you're a sinner and you need someone to pay for your sins or you got to pay for them yourselves. But then I also, when in talking about this, is uh, I talk a little bit about dating because uh, people can understand dating. You know, if, if, if a young man uh, really pursues a girl to the point where she says, look, I like you, but only as a friend, and the guy persists anyway, if he says, look, I love you so much, I'm going to force you to love me. Uh, the, the, the woman should run screaming from the building because you can't force anybody to love anybody else. Love must be freely given. So I asked the question, if this guy truly did love a woman, but the woman didn't want to return the favor, didn't love him back, if he truly did love her, what should he do? And everyone says he should leave her alone. And that's exactly what God does. He leaves us alone. If we don't want him now, we're not going to want him in eternity. God is not going to force anybody into heaven against their will. You see, people think, uh, pe people forget that Jesus is in heaven. Well, there have been people running from Jesus their entire lives. What's he going to do in the afterlife? Hey, where are you going? You're with me now. No. God leaves people alone in hell if they don't want to be with him in heaven. Look, if there is a God and there is, and, there, and if there is an afterlife and there is, there's only two possible destinations. You're either going to be with God in the afterlife, that's heaven, or you're going to be separated from God in the afterlife, that's hell. There's no other logical possibilities. If, if there's an eternal life, you're going to be in one of two places. And it's up to you whether or not you want to be with God forever. If so, you'll accept what he's done to, to, uh, to take his or your punishment on himself. And if you don't want to do that, fine. God will leave you alone in hell. No, amen. I, I just thought it was a wonderful presentation that you gave. And, and I absolutely love that. And I said, as I said, when you did that, you could see you were really sharing with him and one of the reasons we're going to put that link in the description is because if you guys haven't seen that, I'd love for you to check it out because it is a great means to be able to then open up a chance to share the gospel in, in that manner. And I think you just did a great job in that. And I want to talk a little bit about the book. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. First of all, just the best title. 
<laughs> the best title. I, I love that title. I think it's great. But you kind of break this down a lot in your presentations into four basic questions that kind of get us to a conclusion. And the first one is simply, does truth exist? So I got to ask you, does truth exist? Well, when people say there is no truth, you always just need to ask them one question, and that is, is that true? <laughs> is it true that <laughs> truth does not exist? Or when they say there is no truth, that's a truth claim. It's self-defeating to say there's no truth, because as soon as you open your mouth to say there's no truth, you're uttering a truth claim. It's like saying I can't speak a word in English. And so we spend some time in the book. We spent a couple chapters pointing out that truth is objective, that truth is absolute, that there's no such thing as your truth. There's just the truth. And uh, if that's the case, then you can move on to the next question. Is it true that God exists? But there's no sense talking about truth if everyone just if truth is relative, if there is no truth, no objective truth. It's just your opinion, in other words. So we spend a a lot of time because, you know, Chad, in our culture, there's a lot of self-defeating statements out there. You know, people say there's no truth. You ask them, is that true? People say all truth is relative. You say, is that a relative truth? That's an absolute truth. People say there are no absolutes. You might want to say, are you absolutely sure? Right. I mean, people want to say you ought not judge. You can say, well, then why are you judging me for judging? Right. See, these are all self-defeating statements. And you need to ensure that you can show that they're self-defeating so you don't waste time believing something that's false and possibly ruin your life doing so because if you start living by false principles eventually you're going to smack up against reality and it's going to hurt so we spend a fair amount of time talking about the fact that truth is objective that truth uh, you can know it and uh, it's not just your truth or my truth you might as well say look i have my own math you know in my math two plus two equals 12. no sorry that's not the way reality works (laughs) <laughs> no, I love that. No, it's really good. And you you deal also, I've seen your presentation a number of times, and one of the things you talk about is people talk about judgments, but they have no problem when someone says, man, that was a really good presentation. No one's like, come mm-hmm. on, don't judge me this way. That's and I right. find that to be hilarious. <laughs> yeah, people compl- when people compliment you or you compliment somebody, they don't say, who are you to judge, right? Well, that's, that's a judgment, right? People don't have a problem with judgments. They just have a problem with judgments they don't like. Yeah, amen. And as as you pointed out, yeah, Jesus had a problem with hypocritical judgment, taking Mm -hmm. the speck out of your your brother's eye when you still got a log in yours. It's about being uh, a hypocrite, not you know. And that's typically one of the favorite verses of atheists. I've never seen more more atheists memorize a verse, and almost always in King James in uh, Matthew seven one. It's always Mm -hmm. interesting. They who knew that most atheists are King James onlyists, but. But nonetheless, nonetheless, uh, the next question that you dig into in the book and also in your presentation as well is, does God exist? So what are some good evidences to point to people to say, hey, this is how we know God exists? Well, we already mentioned one of them. That's the cosmological argument that space, time and matter had a beginning out of nothing. So the cause must be spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful, personal, intelligent. The second argument is the argument from design. And there's two aspects to that, as you know, there's the design of the universe, and then there's design of life. For example, just one one fact about the design of the universe. Even Stephen Hawking admitted, he said, if the expansion rate of the universe was different by one part in a thousand million million a second after the Big Bang, the universe would collapse back on itself or never develop galaxies. So if the expansion rate of the universe was that infinitesimally different from the very beginning, we wouldn't be here. 
Now, you can't make any sort of evolutionary kind of explanation for this. You can't say, oh, well, the expansion rate evolved to such and such a point by chance, whatever that means. No, the expansion rate started there. It seems to me the same being that created space, time and matter is the same being that set the initial expansion rate precisely what it needed to be. If it were changed at all, virtually imperceptibly, we wouldn't be here. And there's about a dozen of these characteristics about our universe, Chad. Change any one of them virtually imperceptibly, and there's either no universe or no universe that could support life. And these these parameters have had many atheists say, yeah, this is probably the best argument for theism out there including the late Christopher Hitchens, who I had an opportunity to debate a couple of times. Hitchens said, yeah, the fine-tuning argument is the hardest one to get around for an atheist because change any one of a number of factors virtually imperceptibly, and we're not here. And for those of you that don't remember Christopher Hitchens, he was a brilliant British atheist who sounded more brilliant than he was because he had a British accent. So you can, you can see those, uh, those debates on our cross-examined YouTube channel. Yeah, it has millions of views actually um, on your Cox Examine YouTube channel. And just it's excellent to be able to have those things out there for people to see and for people to hear so that they understand these arguments. And I think one of the great things that you're doing with Cross Examine is going to these colleges and exactly what we're talking about. Why does God exist? Is there truth? All of these things that you send, you tell some stories, and maybe I'll let you tell that story because it'll be kind of in, intertwined with the next two questions that I'll ask uh, regarding this whole succession here. But you deal with stories dealing with people who send their kids off to school, and next thing you know, they're not following Christ anymore. So maybe you could dig into that so people see the importance of understanding these arguments. Yeah, I've had several people tell me, you know, my son or daughter went off to college, and now they're atheists. You know, they were Christians before they went, now they're atheists. And of course, at that point, they're always like, well, can you give me a book to read or can, can I give them a book? And I'm going, well, <laughs> look, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. It would have been, made more sense to ground them in the truth before they went off rather than trying to rescue them after they've already jumped ship. And uh, I think too many parents don't seem to realize that we need to equip uh, our young people even well before they go to college because look all of us have the golden rectangle right the iphone or the droid or whatever <laughs> kids have it now and those kids can get all sorts of skepticism by just looking on their iphone so the, the survey seemed to show now chad that kids are aren't leaving the faith as much in college they're leaving the faith before they ever get to college and about 70 percent of the kids that you know are church attenders in high school walk away from the church once they leave the home. And one of the reasons is, is intellectually, they don't know why it's true. No, I think it's, it's heartbreaking. And it seems like you have an instance where they're off in college and maybe they're away from their families for the first time. So now you have ethics coming into play as well. And then all of a sudden all their friends and their roommates are all getting drunk and all these things. And there's that pesky thing of growing up in a Christian household that told you, hey, these things, you probably shouldn't be getting drunk, probably shouldn't be trying to get STDs and stuff. And also, by the way, intellectually, all your professors, they don't actually believe any of this is true. And it, that's why I think things like cross-examine, uh, books, like you said, preventative care, uh, taking care of these questions beforehand. One of the biggest things, and I know you've gone even gone back and forth on Twitter, and I'll bring that up too, 
is I remember going through like John Steingard uh, from Hawk Nelson, his arguments for why he was leaving the faith. And he was saying how he never had these questions answered. And to me, a lot of those were basic questions early on as a new believer that I had that I was asking shepherds, you know, asking pastors, asking other, you know, people around my age that were believers, hey, what's going on with these? You know, I have this question and this question. But it seemed like this whole, you know, deconstruction movement that we're seeing a lot in the Christian music scene and then all over the place, really, uh, Rhett and Link and YouTubers and so forth online, a lot of it, and you brought this out, and I thought it was really interesting. You posted this on Twitter, and I actually brought this up with Elisa Childers when we interviewed here, but you mentioned specifically that a lot of times it starts with a questioning of the, you know, the biblical sexual ethic. And I don't mm-hmm. know how you worded it, but a lot of times that's where it starts. There's a questioning there, and then next thing you know, it's questioning the Word of God and so forth. And have you seen that to be true? Because I saw you write that on Twitter, and he, in fact, John even wrote you back. And then even in his response, I think his second tweet was like, well, yeah, but you can see why so many people have a problem with it too. Yeah, I recall that exchange with John. I had him on the show maybe a year and a half ago on YouTube. I don't recall the Twitter exchange. I, I rarely interact with people on Twitter. It's a sewer. It really is. Yeah, I mean, people amen. just insult one another. I don't have time for that. I mean, I, put, I post stuff so people can read it, but then I don't get involved because – Look, you can't you can't make arguments in 240 characters anyway, right? I mean, it's just a waste of time. And most of the people there aren't listening; they're just insulting other people. So I don't get involved all that much. But with John, you know, I I've got his email address. I mean, or I can call him; we can talk. But I, I don't think I've seen a deconstruction that didn't have something to do with LGBTQ issues or premarital sex or something. Uh, because I think the religion uh, today is the religion of sex. That's what people are most interested yeah. in. And look, the, the Christian sexual ethic is just too hard for people. They're going, oh, forget it. Uh, Christianity is not true. When, you know, I, I, you, you have these conversations with people and you give them arguments and it's like they don't even want to hear them because they're not interested in truth. They're interested in happiness. They're not on a truth quest or on a happiness quest. And they think that being able to do what they want to do sexually uh, gives them the happiness that they want. Now, I'm not speaking for Steingart or anybody else here. I'm just saying generally because uh, the people that uh, that I've read on this, people like Aldous Huxley, and he, of course, goes back several decades. Yeah. Uh, you know, he said the reason that I believe in meaninglessness was because uh, I, I had an erotic revolt. It's not that I had reasons for meaninglessness. Is that it? It was, it 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 interfered with our sexual mores. You know, we I, we we didn't want God to exist. Basically, is what he's saying. Uh, Christopher Hitchens said God is a cosmic North Korean dictator peering in on our sex lives. His his problem didn't appear to be all that intellectual. It had to be. It, it appeared to be moral. That's why I always ask people if Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? And if they're honest, they'll say no. Because it's not, it has nothing to do with the evidence. It has everything to do with what they want to do. They don't want there to be a God because they want to be God. At least some of the atheists that, that have written about this basically have, admit, have, have admitted it. Even uh, the, the great philosopher Thomas Nagel said, way back in 1997, he said, it's not just that I don't believe in God. He said, I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the world to be that way. He said one of the most uh, frightening things for him is that some of the most intelligent people he knows are religious believers. 
he said, I have a cosmic authority problem. And at the time when Hitchens and Hitchens was alive, he said, he said, I, I think Christopher Hitchens and, and uh, Richard Dawkins have the same cosmic authority problem. They don't want somebody with an authority over them. Oh, wow. Well, you know what? That's once again, right. goes right back to Romans one, right? Suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. And I know I did that when I was an atheist. So I've been there and it's sad and, it, and it's heartbreaking because, you know, God is our designer. He's the one who designed us. He knows how best we run. And it's like, no, let's just put, drop some Coke into my uh, my laptop here and it'll just keep running really well. I think it'll do really well. And that's yeah, now, not how it's been designed. Now, basically, let me just say this, though, Chad. None of what I just said either proves or disproves Christianity or proves or disproves atheism. Motives don't necessarily tell you the Amen. truth. But motives may help you understand why it seems that certain people won't accept what appear to be pretty clear facts. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, and it goes alongside with that question that you asked them. Uh, if Christianity were true, would you would you become a Christian? And right. like you said, then you realize whether or not you're dealing with a heart issue or a head issue, getting right into it. So I think that's, that's great. And let, let me get back to some of the questions that you kind of go through, these four important questions. And you've already answered... Does truth exist? You've already answered, does God exist? And the next one, are miracles possible? I think this is a really, really good one. Are miracles uh, possible, Dr. Frank Turek? Yeah, and people have trouble believing in miracles, and there are some fantastic miracles in in the Bible, as you know, from Noah to Jonah to resurrections, and we go, how can we believe such things, right? But I always ask people, what's the greatest miracle in the Bible? Most people will say the resurrection, and I'll say no. The greatest miracle in the Bible is not the resurrection. The greatest miracle in the Bible is the first verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Because if that verse is true, every other verse is at least possible. I mean, if God can create the universe out of nothing, can he raise Jesus from the dead? Yeah, of course. Can he uh, do the Noah miracle or the Jonah miracle or part the Red Sea or walk on water? He can do any of these things, right, if he can create the universe out of nothing. Well, the interesting point here is that even atheists are admitting the data for the first verse. They're admitting that space, time, and matter had a beginning out of nothing. Now, of course, they don't think it's God, but as we mentioned earlier, what else could have created this space-time continuum? It's got to be a spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful, personal, intelligent cause. That's what we mean by God. So if Genesis 1-1 is true, and the atheists are admitting the data for it, then every other verse in the Bible is at least possible. We're not saying it's true at this point. We're just saying it's possible. So, of course, if God exists, miracles are possible. You can't rule it out. <laughs> Amen. So true. And I know there's uh, there's some great pieces of literature out there, too, on this subject as well. I know a new one, obviously, by Lee Strobel, but also, um, actually, that's not his new one. His new one's on heaven, but nonetheless. But also, Dr. Craig Keener has a two-volume, over a 1,000 pages on this. I know they made an abridged version as well, just on miracles, not only past, but also present. Just incredible, incredible. And you guys should check those out as well. But also, as we go down this list, so we've dealt with, does truth exist? Does God exist? Are miracles possible? This leads us to the question of the New Testament, whether or not it is reliable. So Dr. Mm-hmm. Frank Turek, is the New Testable, New Testament reliable? Yeah, well, there's a lot of evidence for that. We can't do it all here on the, on the stream, but that's what we cover in I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist and also the book Stealing from God. And I usually alliterate things to help me remember them. And uh, there are several lines of evidence that the New Testament writers are telling the truth. 
Uh, one is we have early testimony. These documents are written down very early. We have eyewitness testimony. Scores of, de of eyewitness details are throughout the text, uh, particularly the Gospel of John and uh, Luke, the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts have detail after eyewitness detail in them that only an eyewitness or someone who knew an eyewitness would know. There's embarrassing details they never would have made up, like the disciples running away at the at the crucifixion, or or Paul or, or uh, Peter being called Satan by Jesus, or the fact that that Peter denies Christ three times, or the women are the brave ones while the men run away. I mean, these are not made up stories, right? You don't you don't invent stories that make yourself and your colleagues embarrassed. You might make up things that make you look good, but you won't make up things that make you look bad. Uh, also, Jesus is called a drunkard. He's called demon-possessed. He has his feet wiped with the hair of a prostitute, which easily could have been seen as a sexual advance. There's even two prostitutes in his bloodline, Rahab and Tamar. These are not made-up stories. They're embarrassing and... Because they're embarrassing, most historians would say, well, they're probably true because they wouldn't be invented. In fact, the whole Bible has embarrassing stories about its supposed heroes that, that they wouldn't invent. Uh, it has excruciating deaths in it. You know, these people went and died for what they said they saw when they could have saved themselves by saying, look, it never happened. And as you know, the writers of the New Testament had no motive to invent the New Testament. These are Jewish believers in Yahweh. Why would they say a man claimed to be God and rose from the dead? Those were two things that that they didn't believe were possible because claiming to be God as a man would be blasphemy. And they didn't think someone would rise from the dead in the middle of time. They thought somebody at the end of time would rise from the dead, but not in the middle of time. And, uh, of course, the guys that wrote the text down were Jewish believers in Yahweh. So they, they, they wouldn't have invented this. They wouldn't have gone to their deaths for it if it wasn't true. So it seems to make sense that they're really telling the truth. And there are several other reasons that we have in the book that the New Testament writers are telling the truth. In fact, I sometimes put it this way, uh, Chad. Uh, I, I, I often say, hey, what I'm about to say, if you believe the Bible is inerrant, is going to sound like heresy, but it's not. Just stick with me. I like to say this, that Christianity is not true because a series of documents we put under one binding we call the Bible says it's true. In fact, Christianity would be true if the Bible never existed. And people go, well, how can that be? I'll ask them, do you realize there were thousands of Christians before a line of the New Testament was ever written? Yeah, why? Because the risen Jesus appeared to people. That's why they became Christians. Later, they wrote it down so we would know about it. But the reason they were Christians was not because they read it in a book somewhere. What, it was because they either saw the risen Jesus themselves or somebody they knew and trusted saw him and said he had risen from the dead. In other words, you could put it this way. The New Testament writers did not create the resurrection. The resurrection created the New Testament writers. You wouldn't have New Testament documents written by Jews in the first century saying Jesus had risen from the dead unless he really had. So, as I say, there's other evidence, too, but... the those four are enough for our discussion right here. No, I think those are those are great. And it is a great talking point. It's a great way to start and springboard if you're wait, wanting to share the gospel with people. And I know I want you guys to check out crossexamine.org, but also 
Frank has a ton of videos out on his YouTube channel. You guys are always posting different clips from your Q&A. And that makes me think as well when it comes to all these questions that you get. Now, I've listened to a number of them, and it is really awesome to see you go back and forth with so many people. And I want to ask you a couple different questions regarding some of the questions that you receive at these Q&As, because you're doing this all the time, speaking, you're giving this presentation, and then opening it up for for comments. You just did it, at, as you mentioned, at the University of Cincinnati, which they're doing great at football right now, which is kind of wild. Are, but yeah. <laughs> but um, I'd well, love to know well, maybe not- some... What was Last that? Said, we, we went out for something to eat after the event, and one of the uh, offensive linemen went with us. He was on the team a couple of years ago, and uh, he said uh, he's like 6'5", 275. His playing, rate, playing weight was, was like 320, and uh, he's sitting right next to me, and he goes, well, what's, what's been your favorite university so far? And I said, the University of Cincinnati, sir. <laughs> 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 what, what else am I going to say? This guy's sitting right next to me, and he's he's six five two seventy five. You can touch me like a bug. So yeah, University of Cincinnati, greatest school ever ever that ever existed. Of course. <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's great, man, and I love it. I love that you're doing that because it is so important. You know, you're going to you know even if there wasn't the preventative care done, hopefully you're going there and and reaching people. I know I came to faith when I was in college after I had become an atheist. So, you know, I know that there are people that are giving good arguments for the faith, and it's really, really important. But, you know, you, where you have... You, where did you go to school? Where, where, uh, where I just went that? here. Uh, it, it was in Park College here locally in uh, oh, close right. to Simi Valley here. Uh, I was trying to wrestle in college and so forth. But, mm-hmm. uh, but nonetheless, you know, you get all these questions. I'd love to know maybe what the most common question you receive at a Q&A, because I'm sure... You come loaded for bear, and don't get me wrong, we do a lot of street evangelism, we show the gospel a lot, and we get some really funny questions, but uh, there are those more common questions that maybe for somebody that, hey, I have a struggle with this, might be a great way to, hey, how do I answer that? So what is the most common question you typically receive, or some of the more common questions you typically receive when you're heading out to these campuses? Well, uh, you know, you always get questions on evil, if God, why evil? Uh, a lot of the questions now, maybe 70% of the questions have something to do with morality. In fact, evil is a moral question. You know, why does God allow evil to occur? So uh, questions about morality are probably 70% of the questions. You know, why did God kill the Canaanites? Uh, slavery in the Old Testament. Uh, why did God create people he knew would go to hell is a moral question. Even what about those that have never heard is a moral question, right? What about the LGBTQ issues? You know, Sex, obviously, is a big deal on campus. Uh, you get questions uh, on, sometimes you get, like last night, we got questions on cosmology. What about the multi-universe or the multiple universe theory? Um, we get questions on other religions sometimes. You know, you're saying Christianity is 100% true and everything else is 100% false. You know, those, those kind of questions. Yeah, and what do you think in terms of, you know, the questions that you do get in terms of the difficulty of answering them. And I, and I know sometimes you're like, well, you know, I, there's some great books out there. I know we've, we've interviewed with Dr. Uh, Clay Jones as well on The Problem of Evil. I think his book is one of the better ones out mm-hmm. there. Norman Geisler has a, a great book on suffering as well for people who are looking for some resources on that kind of stuff. But maybe, you know, maybe you could tell us what some of the more difficult questions are to answer, uh, you know, whether they're emotional for some people or what that may be. And and how, how somebody may go about answering those. 
Yeah, well, I, people ask me what are the hardest questions to answer, and I usually say questions are not hard to answer; they're just hard to answer in two minutes, <laughs> right? I mean, that's the problem. You don't you don't have a lot of time to answer some of these complex questions, especially if you have a line of people waiting to ask questions. You can't spend ten or twenty minutes with one person, right? Uh, so you you really got to get to 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 just one or two points, and then leave the rest to a, a book reference or you know, something else because you can't cover the, the, the waterfront. So uh, when people ask the question, if God, why evil? Uh, sometimes, well, it's not sometimes, all the time, you should really stop and say, well, that's a great question. Why do you ask it? Because if the person's just intellectually curi curious, okay, you'll give the philosophical answer. But if the person said, well, my baby just died last week, you're not, you're not going to give the philosophical answer. You have, a, you, have, you have another answer that you probably want to give, or you have a more pastoral answer, right? There's a pastoral answer to these questions, and then there's a philosophical answer. So when you're answering a, a question, you're really not answering a question. You're answering a person. So you need to try and discover where the person's coming from in order to answer it properly. Oh, yeah, I think that is... So, so important. And, you know, when it comes to these questions that Dr. Frank Turek is is answering, you know, you, you've done obviously a, a number of, you know, a lot of research on these topics and, and so forth. But you guys also do a number of seminars and and and, and conferences. Are, are you now with COVID and everything? You still got some of those uh, going on or are you, you're keeping in uh, some of the states that uh, let you actually uh, open up? Yeah, there? Uh, well, we, we, we didn't do colleges for about a year and a half because there weren't even students on the <laughs> college campus, uh, but there are now. So we've done four so far this semester, 20, fall 2021. I think we have one more this semester. Then we have several scheduled for uh, the fall. I mean, sorry, for the spring uh, 22. And uh, if people want to invite us, all they need to do, do is go to crossexamine.org and click on either invite us to campus or invite us to your church. And we'll figure out a way to figure out a way to get there. Uh, we raise money to do this, particularly for the college campuses. That's really why we exist, to go to college campuses. Sometimes churches can sponsor a college campus. You know, they can help pay for it. Uh, if they have a campus in their neighborhood they want to reach out to, they can bring us in to help do that. So, uh, but yeah, we do churches, we do high schools, we do college campuses, youth groups, youth events, that kind of thing. No, I think it's, a, it's awesome. I, I think yeah. it really is, and you guys need to check that out, especially if you guys are like, hey, I— I'd love this out in, in my school, or in, I'd love this, especially you're, you're part of a church, you guys are next to a campus, it'd be great to bring them out. Um, but I, I want to say we're talking a lot today with Dr. Frank Turek regarding apologetics. And I know we haven't even brought up the word or why we have to do it, <laughs> uh, but I, I think that's really important because some people really do poo-poo uh, apologetics, say, well, I don't need to say sorry for my faith. And in fact, we've had people, we had apologists come on and speak on our show. Someone's like, anytime someone says they're an apologist, I won't listen to them. And I'm like, oh, you're just not getting it. So, Dr. Frank Turek, what on earth is apologetics anyways? Yeah, it comes from a Greek word that's found in 1 Peter 3.15, apologia. It means to give a defense. doesn't mean you're saying you're sorry. It means you're giving a defense for your position. And it's not just Christian apologetics. I mean... You may, even in politics, you might say, well, he's an apologist for the president. What does that mean? It means he's a defender of the president. You know, he's someone that's trying to make the case that the president's doing a good job, that kind of thing. So you, the word isn't just right used now. in Christianity. It's used anywhere. And so 
we're commanded to know why we believe in what we believe. I mean, it's not just first Peter three fifteen. It's, you know, Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength and mind. Paul says we demolish arguments and take every thought captive to Christ. And he's set in defense of the gospel. Isaiah says, the Lord says, come, let us reason together. You know, we're supposed to have evidence for what we believe. And uh, that's what apologetics is all about. And too often over the past hundred years, the church hasn't done that. And that's why the culture is so anti-Christian now is because the church has not been salt and light. The, ch- the church has been anti-intellectual and all emotional. And then we wonder why people, when the going gets tough, they go, ah, it's not really true anyway. It's just a club. It's just, it, it worked for me for a while. It doesn't work for me anymore. That kind of thing, right? They don't realize that Christianity is, is, is the truth about reality. It's the way things really are. It's not just a preference. It's actually true that God exists and Jesus came and lived the perfect life and died and rose again. And by trusting in him, your sins can be forgiven. No, I think that's so important for people to understand because it is a sad thing, the anti-intellectualism with, as you said, specifically that Jesus said, love the Lord thy God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I, I believe when he's responded to, even when he's responded to, it's understanding is what he's responded to back uh, by the scribe as well. And so it's interesting that we're trying to get understanding. We're trying to look at the Word of God and say, what is this and and how can we express this truth? And as you mentioned specifically, that it does seem that that anti-intellectualism in terms of just pushing away any sort of having an answer and justifying ourselves in our faith, the atheist has used that word, faith, as it's honestly been somewhat of an arrow to shoot at the Christian to say, oh, well, faith, the definition of your faith, Dr. Turek, is simply the belief in something when you don't have evidence for it. And don't get me wrong. I've shared the gospel with Mormons out in front of my house, explained why I disagreed with the Book of Mormon, why I didn't believe that uh, Joseph Smith, you know, had special lenses that he was able to read Egyptian hieroglyphics with, And they say, well, there are certain things you just have to take in faith. So I have heard the word used that way, but maybe help people to understand what faith actually means biblically versus the definition that is typically lambasted on us by atheists. Yeah, good question. Uh, In fact, when we wrote the book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, we're using faith in the title like the atheists use it, that when you don't have evidence, you just have faith. It's blind, right? And so our point is that you got to have a lot of faith to be an atheist because there's really no evidence that atheism is true. There's no evidence you can explain reality in the absence of, of a deity. Okay, so that's what that's the way we're using it to to be blind faith. But in reality, that's not the biblical definition. The biblical definition is trusting in what you have good evidence to believe. Uh, trusting in what you have good evidence to believe, because there's a difference between belief that and belief in. Belief that is getting evidence that God exists, that Jesus rose from the dead, that the New Testament writers are telling the truth about Jesus. But all the evidence in the world won't get your moral transgressions forgiven. For that, you got to go from belief that to belief in, or we might say trust in. Uh, because there's a difference between belief that, which is just of the head, and belief in, which is also of the heart. You see, James, who wrote that little book in the New Testament called James, 
He said even the demons believe that God exists, but they tremble. In other words, they know intellectually better than we do that God exists, but they don't trust in Christ. They're irredeemable, the angels. They've already made their decision. They don't trust in Christ. They believe that it's true, but they don't trust in him. For us, we have to go from belief that to belief in, because as I said earlier, God is not going to force you into heaven against your will. If you don't want him now, you're not going to want him in eternity. And, and by the way, we, we know this belief that, belief in, distinction in relationships. When I first met my wife 36 years ago, I got evidence that she'd be a good wife, but all the evidence in the world didn't make her my wife. I had to take a step of trust in her to ask her to be my wife. And in a momentary lapse of judgment, she said yes. <laughs> See, that's the difference between belief that and belief in. Most of the time when the Bible's talking about faith, it's talking about belief in. After you know that it's true, trust in it. In fact, if you look at the end of chapter 20 of the Gospel of John, uh, I think John says something like, these things were written down so that you may believe that Christ is the Savior, and by trusting in him, you may have life in, in, in his name, something like that. I'm paraphrasing. So he's talking about belief that and belief in in one verse right there. Uh, belief that is the evidence. Belief in is how you get this. And, and you, we, we do this every day, right? We, you, you get you get on an airplane or you get in a car. You know, you have evidence that say that the airplane is safe or the car is safe. Uh, and so you trust in it by getting in it. But you're not guaranteed that you're going to get wherever you're going. You just you're going on the evidence that you can trust in what that evidence is telling you and christianity is the same way you, you may not be a hundred percent sure but you have very good evidence to say yeah i'm going to put my trust in christ for my salvation because he not only created me but he came to earth to save me so why wouldn't i trust in that even if i don't have all my questions answered no you never will even if i i'm not a hundred percent sure about about it because Look, I'm a finite being. I could be possibly wrong, right? Sure. But all the evidence that I see to this point points directly toward Christianity. So why wouldn't I make that decision? No, I think that is excellent. And I, I know we're, we're running late on time here, but I wanted to give uh, just a quick scenario that maybe you could help someone that might be in this situation, especially with all of the time you spent speaking at colleges and also I'm sure... I can't imagine, we receive a lot of those emails as well, so I can't imagine how many emails you receive regarding, hey, my, my son or my daughter, they're, they're just at this place where it doesn't look like they believe. I don't know, I don't have the answers. But instead of speaking to the parents, you know, hopefully that this episode will do a good job of expressing to them why it's so important to ground them in the truths of the Christian faith. But maybe speak also, if you had a chance, with that young student uh, maybe, like you said, some of them are leaving before they ever even get there because they're looking at their phones. TikTok is telling them this. Twitter tells them this and so forth. All these TikTok theologians out there. And mm. so, you know, maybe speaking to them on why they can actually put trust in this. Just a, a nice message for them to say, hey, this is why you shouldn't deconstruct from the faith you were supposed to be building. Hopefully your parents were trying their best. But this is the reason why you shouldn't deconstruct. And this is the reason why you need to cling in, to Jesus. Well, I'm reminded of what Peter said to Jesus after a lot of the disciples left uh, Jesus in John chapter 6. Jesus turns to Peter and says, are you going to leave too? And Peter says, 
Lord, you have the words of eternal life. Where else are we going to go? I mean, people don't realize when they deconstruct out of Christianity, they're reconstructing some other faith system, even if it's atheism. And it turns out that no other system best explains reality like Christianity does. Atheism doesn't. Hinduism doesn't. Islam doesn't. Judaism alone doesn't. No other worldview has more evidence behind it than Christianity. In fact, you might even ask yourself the question, why is there evidence for anything? Because this is an orderly universe. And why is it an orderly universe that our minds can know truth about? Because this universe was put together as our minds were put together by a great mind who created this universe and sustains this universe and gives us an opportunity to either love him or to reject him. So you might think that you're somehow getting real reasonable and rational by dumping Christianity, but in fact, you're dumping reason and rationality out the window as soon as you do that. Because unless God exists, you shouldn't even believe anything you think. If you adopt atheism and you're just a moist robot, why should you believe anything is true then, including the thought that atheism is true? Because you're not really following the evidence where it leads if atheism is true. You're not really reasoning. You're just reacting. You're just a molecular machine. So why believe anything you think is true? No. The only reason you should be able to believe in thought itself is because God exists. So atheism, these other worldviews don't have the kind of evidence that Christianity has. In fact, evidence itself needs to be explained, and Christianity explains it. Now, I couldn't think of a better way than to finish up with that because I, I want people— to know that they can come to Christ and know that they have good reasons for what they believe. And Dr. Turk, I think you're doing such an amazing work, and, and I hope and pray that God continues to use you in a powerful way. And if you guys are listening uh, right now, make sure you go to crossexamine.org. Check out some of the resources. I know we didn't even get into Stealing from God, which I read that a couple of years ago, I think right when it came out. And man, that was such an excellent book as well. And I know you did a number of videos as well alongside of that just talking of the different ways that when atheists make their arguments, they actually steal from the very God they're trying to disprove. And mm -hmm. I think it's an excellent, excellent resource. But I don't know if you have any other resources you'd like to share with them that you're working on or you got some special presentation coming up that you'd like to share as well before we say goodbye. Well, they can keep track of us, uh, Chad, as you say, on our website, crossexamine.org, and on our YouTube channel. Every time we go live and do one of these events, we stream it so they can see it live and they can also see the Q&A. Uh, we have an app that has all this stuff on it, the cross-examined app, two words in the app store. It actually has a quick answer section in there. It's got our podcast called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist we do every week. It has our TV show on there. Uh, so there's a lot of resources people can get right, right there. Just download the cross-examined app, two words in the app store cross-examine. We're teaching online courses now at crossexamine.org. Uh, you can see that as well. So some I teach, but we have many other uh, instructors that some of your viewers may have heard of, like Jay Warner Wallace, like uh, Sean McDowell, like Gary Habermas, and uh, and uh, Lisa Childers is about to uh, create a course for us and some, some other folks as well. So uh, go to that website and check all that out. Uh, that's how they can stay in touch with us. That's awesome. And now that we finally interviewed you, we actually have interviewed everyone you listed as well. <laughs> so we'll have to make just a cross-examine playlist of there you all, go. There all you the go. people 
But I wanted to thank you so much, Frank, for for coming together and, and being able to share with people. I know you do such a great job. You're a great communicator. And I hope that people also grab these resources that you offer. So I want to thank you so much for joining the Good Fight Radio Show. Dr. Hey, thanks for having me on, Chad. Thanks for the work you're doing. And I uh, appreciate being on. All right. And God bless you guys. Praise the Lord. God bless. You've been listening to the Good Fight Radio Show brought to you by Good Fight Ministries. If you're blessed by this show and would like to partner with us, please consider visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com goodfight. Or you can write to us at P.O. Box 2202, Simi Valley, California, 93062. Or call us toll-free at 1-866-JC-TRUTH. That's 1-866-528-7884. We hope you'll tune in next time on the Good Fight Radio Show.